have you have you ever been thirsty? I mean, I mean, really, really thirsty. I'm not talking about the thirst that after being outside working a little bit in the yard, you come in and it's warm outside, but you come in, it's cool, and you go to the refrigerator and pour a glass of lemonade. No, I'm, I'm talking about the kind of the kind of thirst that, that if you don't get a drink soon, man, you might be in physical danger. I was a, a fairly decent golfer in high school. I had the opportunity to to play on the, the golf team, varsity golf team, for several years in high school. I, uh, I practiced and, I mean, I played golf, I mean, nearly every, every day through those years. I mean, summer, winter, fall, spring, I lived and breathed golf. See, I grew up near the, near the Gulf Coast, south of Galveston in a town called uh, Lake Jackson. We have lots of mosquitoes, lots of humidity and heat. Uh, in fact, in the summer, it, it usually stays around mid-90s. You get up in the morning, it, it might be 75, upper 70s. But by mid-afternoon, it's mid to upper 90s. Humidity is, oh, 70, sometimes 80%, which makes it, particularly in July and August, feel like a minimum of 105, oftentimes 115 degrees outside. I was out um, playing golf on one of these hot, humid days. I, I was, um, as my usual thing, I would go out to the practice range and I'd get three or four buckets of balls and I'd work on my, on my stroke. This particular golf course, they had water stations about every three holes. So I'd, I'd go, I'd hit all these balls, and then I'd, and I'd go play around. And um, I always relied on these... Uh, these coolers, water coolers, they were always filled with ice water and you get there and fill up your little cup and drink. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Oh, it's refreshing. Well, so I'd finished hitting balls and I went straight from the practice range over to the first tee. It's a five par. I started playing. I birdied the first hole. Came to the second hole, hit a great shot up onto the green, a two putt, made a par. The third hole, it's one of these, uh, dog leg left. So if you're a golfer, you know a, a dog leg left. It goes up like this, and then it makes this sharp left turn, about 175 yards. So if you're not careful, you could actually drive it through the fairway, and there's a lake behind there. You could hit it into the lake. But I was feeling good. I had I'd birdied the first hole. I had, I had parred the next hole, and so I thought, well, I can, I can do this. So I pulled out my driver. I had a natural, a natural hook, and so I was going to send it out toward the middle of the fairway and kind of bend it around the corner. So I stood behind the ball and boom, just like I had planned. Started out kind of the left side of the fairway, went over the trees there in the corner, and I knew it was going to be a good shot. I threw my golf clubs on my back, started trotting down the fairway, round the corner, and there was my ball right in the middle of the fairway, about 15 yards from the hole. As I was walking, man, I knew, man, I'm starting to get thirsty, but I knew, hey, on this next hole, there's a... There's a water cooler. I'll get a drink when I'm getting there. I was sweating. This is hot. So I get up. I chip the ball up about 10 feet from the hole, and I drained it. Now I'm two under par. Those of you golfers out there, you know the feeling? Two under par after three holes. I mean, I'm getting excited. Now the next hole, three, it's a long three par. And so I go. I drop my clubs down there. I pulled out a long iron, and I hit. I see the, the, the pin is in the back of the green. And I hit, and I just, again, flush, 
and it goes up and begins on the, on the right side of the, of the green and begins to turn back and goes right toward the hole. I see one bounce and the ball disappears. And I'm thinking to myself, I just made a hole in one. I mean, I'm, I'm getting excited now. I'm shouting. and like, ah, did anybody see that? There's nobody around, but I'm screaming and shouting. And I throw my clubs on and I'm, I get down there and only to find that my ball had hit probably four, five feet in front of the hole, right in front of the hole, had bounced, missed the pin, and now was laying on the backside of the green, kind of in the, in the fringe. I chipped it up, made the putts and, uh, for, for a par, and I headed over to the next hole. What I had forgotten to do in all my excitement was to get a drink. I began to realize, man, I am, I am really thirsty, but, man, I am stroking the ball really, really well. Do I want to, like, set my clubs down and walk all the way back, get a drink, and then come back? I think, man, I can't. I don't want to jinx myself. I'm too under par. I'm too under par after. Um, no, I'm yeah, too under par after four holes. I'm not going to do it. So I have two more holes, and there will be another water, um, water cooler. So off I go. I hit the ball, and, man, I'm beginning to feel fatigued. I look down, and I'm starting to kind of feel a little flush. I notice I'm not sweating as much anymore, and I'm beginning to get a pretty pounding headache. I get through that hole, and then the next one's a long par five. I think, man, I mean, I can hardly even concentrate. I'm kind of starting to feel a little jittery. I've just got to finish this hole and get to the, get to the water. So I don't even remember what my score was. That tells you how what what was going on. I get through and I rush over there to the to the coolers. What's one cooler? And it's it's empty. I'd never been. I've never played on that course, and there was an empty cooler. And I'm thinking. I mean, I had this feeling just kind of came over me, like, oh my word. I'm looking around. Maybe I can find somebody. I can wave somebody down to come give me a ride to uh, the next cooler or to the clubhouse. No one was out there. I'm the only crazy one playing golf in 99-degree weather, humid. And so I'm thinking, I am, I am in trouble. I'm starting to feel nauseous. So I, I thought, well, I've, just, I've got to get to the clubhouse. I've got to get to the clubhouse. So I set my clubs down, and I, and I make, uh, start making my way there. Go past hole seven. I'm about halfway past hole number eight, and I realize, wait a minute, there's a pond up on this hole. And so I start kind of sprinting, and I get up to this pond, and I don't care about the crawdads, the fish, the amoebas, or what else is living in that, in that pond. I mean, I just stick my head in there, and I drink in that brown, murky, algae-fied water. And it was good. <laughs> I drank, and I, I laid back down there, and I just, ah. Oh. And then I stuck my head back in there. I'm splashing it all over me. Oh, thank you for this water. And I laid down there. Finally, somebody, I guess, saw me. They were coming up hole number five. They, they saw me. Hey, are you all right? And I said, I'm doing much better now. <laughs> they brought me in their cart, took me up to the clubhouse. I went inside in the air condition and got a Gatorade and just rested and relaxed. Never told my folks. He went back, got my clubs, and I got to the place where I was okay and drove myself, uh, drove myself back home. See, I learned that day what, what thirst, what thirst is all about. See, when you're, when you're desperate 
when you're, I mean, truly thirsty, when you're on the run trying to escape the, the effects of dehydration, there's only one thing that will satisfy. That's water. It doesn't even matter what it looks like. Just water. I could just get some water. In the context of our psalm today, David finds himself in a, in a desperate situation. I mean, he's literally on the run. You see, for four years, his son Absalom had been standing outside the gate there in Jerusalem. People from all over the, all over the area would, would come to seek the counsel of the king. But Absalom would, would meet them, and he'd bring them in, and he would charm them and, and love on them. And, and he, in fact, the Scripture says in Second Samuel that he won, over these past four years, he won the hearts of all the people of Israel. He wickedly conspired to become the self-proclaimed king of Israel, amassing massive, huge support throughout the land. And one day, word came to David that his son was coming to take the throne. So David was forced to flee for his life. And in haste, he, he left his home and he, he traveled northwest up along the, um, uh, the Jordan River. He crossed... A, he crossed the Jordan River and then went north again and then took a hard uh, right into the, into the wilderness region. Soon his son, Ab- Absalom, would gather all the fighting men of Israel and would come after David to kill him and all of his men. It's in this wilderness, it's in this situation that David pins this psalm. Psalm 67. I want us to read it together. Psalm 67. And as you have your Bible there in front of you, you see there your pew Bible, page number 479. I want you to have it there. We're going to kind of look at various phrases and just kind of chew and marinate on this this psalm this morning. Psalm 63. read it together. Here we go. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the, in the watches of the night for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They shall be given over to the power of the sword. 
they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Well, Father, now in this brief time together as we, as we study the psalm, your word, I pray, God, you would teach us what it means to, to thirst for you. And we come to seek you, to behold you, to know you, to worship you, and to live for you. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might see wonderful things in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. There's many things that we can um, learn from this, from this passage. I want us just to focus on, on two important truths found here. Two important truths. First, God alone satisfies. God alone satisfies. And number two, God alone delivers. So first, God alone satisfies. As I mentioned, David, he's on the run. He had, he had literally lost everything. His home, his possessions, his wealth, his family, his honor, his kingdom, his country, and even the very symbol of the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. He had to leave it there in Jerusalem. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were David. You're on the run. Your son wants to kill you. Jeremy, you're wanting to kill your dad. You couldn't take me, though. (laughs) But, I mean, heartbreak. Your son is out to kill you. He's amassed the army, the people of Israel that had once served you, and now they are coming for your life. As you lay down on a borrowed cot, you begin to cry out to the Lord. What do you say? I mean, what is your prayer? What is my prayer? I mean, do you focus on the circumstance? Is your... Is your prayer filled with fear? Do you complain? Do you weep? Uh, I look into my heart. I think I'd do a little bit of all of that. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice where David's focus begins. Look at the first verse. Oh God, you are my God. See, though he has lost everything, he knew there was one thing that could not be taken away from him, his God. Longman and Garland, in their commentary on this specific passage, they, they speak of the construction of this opening phrase. If you, if you go to the original language, that, oh God, it's Elohim, the creator God. You are my God, El, just the, the term for God. But when you put it in this structure, oh God, you are my God, it has the sense, they say, of, of Yahweh, this covenant, loving, promise-keeping God. They write, it signifies essentially the same as Yahweh, the covenantally faithful God. See, David takes satisfaction knowing that God is his God. This forever faithful, promise-keeping God knows him and is still with him in the midst of these circumstances. And though these, and though these circumstances are, are dire, God remains faithful. In a sense, David is saying, He's, he's crying out to God here. He's saying, I am, I am his and he is mine. You, oh God, you are my God and I, I am yours. I belong to you. And I think of some of the, of the ways that God shows his faithfulness to us. 
talking to Betty Hanna the other day, just, or yesterday, just hearing some of how God has been faithful with her and her family over these 100 years. A good, covenant, promise-keeping, faithful God. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 here. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Here, David is speaking of, of God's steadfast love. God's love is this loyal love, a faithful love that never gives up. It's an unfailing, forever committed, uncompromising love. This love is better than anything, anything in life. Think about some of the incredible aspects of, of my life. You know, I, I had the, just the sweet joy of growing up with incredible parents, wonderful family. Had dear friends, some of the wonderful experiences I had in college and seminary. And then meeting and marrying the love of my life and having three beautiful children. In ministry, traveling to some of the, I mean, just some incredible places throughout the world doing ministry and mission. I've had some incredible moments here at UBC the past 14 years, just loving you and being loved by you. It's been a sweet, sweet joy. Angela and I just celebrated 25 years of marriage together this uh, past couple of weeks and enjoyed uh, really some I mean, unbelievably sweet moments there in, in Canada as we kind of vacationed together. Yet among all of these life experiences, there is nothing better, nothing more awesome and incredible than the steadfast love of God. I mean, David, David gets it. He had experienced, I mean, he was king. And looking back over his life, he had seen God's faithfulness over and over again. But he says, he says, because of your steadfast love is better than life. I will praise you. Everything that I've experienced, everything that I've experienced in life, it pales in comparison to the ongoing pursuing love of God. We find ourselves on the run, facing difficulties or, or even desperate circumstances. And God alone satisfies. He's our God. His, his steadfast love is, is better than life. It's better than living. It's the opening description of this psalm says, David was, he's in the wilderness there in, in Judah. Verse 1, David, he's describing the, the very land he's, he now finds himself. It's this very dry, very arid it's, it's a weary, or the word is exhausted land. And then he says, uh, um, he says, oh God, you're my God. Earth, I seek you. My flesh faints. My soul thirsts. As in dry and weary land where there's no water. And that water is, the, is, is actually the plural. He's saying, man, there's no, there are, there's no river. There's no creek. There's no stream. There's no, there's no lake or pond. There's not even a puddle here. It is dry and exhausted. It is wilderness. Second hmm. Samuel seventeen twenty eight. There were some folks that brought some supplies out to David. As he saw his men, this is what the scripture says. He, they found David and his men hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. They were at the end of themselves physically. 
But, I mean, notice where David is finding his refreshment. It's not in water. It's not in food. David says in verse 1, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. He's saying that all that's within him and all of his outward being yearns and craves for God. See, when I was on that golf course, all I could think about was getting, getting to some water. David is running from his son at the same time he's running to God. He knows that God alone satisfies. My soul thirsts for you. Two other times David uses this word soul, which literally means his entire being. Verse 8, David says that his soul clings to God. It's like, like a glue. All that's within David is cleaving and holding on to God as if his life depended on it. Then look back at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You know, when I think of fat and rich food, I think of bacon. You know, good, I mean, just bacon. I mean, bacon. Bacon makes everything better. Man, you can put bacon on a salad and it becomes something glorious. You put bacon on a potato and you put bacon in potato salad. You, you wrap bacon around a steak and it becomes all of a sudden filet mignon. And you can take bacon and wrap it around a, a fig and it starts to taste like dessert. And there's one thing better than peanut butter and jelly and that's peanut butter and bacon. You're laughing. Now give it a try. You'll see what I'm talking about. Let it, let it get, it gets hot and you lay it on top of that, lay it on top of that peanut butter. It kind of melts and gets warm. You buy, oh. <laughs> but here, I don't think bacon is what um, David is talking about. He was a Jew and so they stayed away from poor. But what? <laughs> but I can go there. See, I can go there. The word fat here means, I mean, the most excellent portion. I mean, the, the most excellent or the finest. This word rich means full of flavor. In other words, David is saying that God is so satisfying. It's like sitting down at the banquet table and you're brought all this incredible food. I mean, the best you've ever seen, smelled, and tasted. And you just get to eat until you are full and satisfied. David is full and satisfied in God, as with fat and rich food. Hmm. And then it says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This word praise, halal, which is what we get our word, hallelujah. He breaks out into exuberant, joyful praise. I mean, he is boasting in the Lord with shouts of joy. Because God alone satisfies. David isn't just thinking back at times in the past when God has been faithful or when God has been satisfied and when he's been able to praise him. You know, the, these, these words, they're in a, in a sense uh, that th- these action words from the song, they form um, really both the, they, the past tense and really an ongoing present tense. So in other words, what David is doing, he, is, he has been satisfied and he is now being satisfied. He is seeking the Lord and he is, or he has sought the Lord and he is still seeking the Lord even in this desert. 
His soul has been satisfied and is being satisfied right now while he's on the run and hiding in the wilderness. How about you? Is this, is this your God? Do you thirst and hunger for him like this? Do seeking and longing and thirsting, fainting, praising, being satisfied in God alone, do, do these things mark your life? Oh, don't what we do. Here's what we do. We try to fill up our satisfaction with lesser things. I mean, things, good things like relationships and friendships, work and children, sports, grades, maybe a fraternity or sorority, or looking for belonging, our home, our possessions, a hobby. I mean, you name it, the list goes on and on. These, again, can be sweet blessings from God, but they're, they can also become idols that rob us of the fullness of knowing the very depths of God's steadfast love and the riches of his amazing grace and the glories of his gospel that have transformed us from from sinner to saint and from orphan to adopted child, from death to life and from enemy to friend and from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is David's God. And he cries out, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, earnestly, early, throughout the day, I yearn for you. I seek you. Everything within me thirsts for you. If I don't get you soon, I am going to fade away and be devastated. I need you. My body faints for you. Your steadfast, pursuing, and faithful love is better than anything that I've ever experienced in life. It's better than life itself. Therefore, right now on my bed, before you in this wilderness, in this dry and weary land, I will praise you. I will be satisfied in you and you alone, and I will exult in you with joyful shouts. God alone satisfies. God alone satisfies. But God also he alone delivers. Look with me back at verse 6, 6 through 8. David writes, When I remember you on my bed, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This word remember means to, to bring to mind or to recall this word meditate means to, to think intently upon at, uh, for, for long periods of time. See, in the Old Testament days, uh, the night was broken up into watches, three watches of four hours each. So David is saying all through the night, in these different watches, it's not just I get up and I think about you and I'm done. No, through the night, I, I'm, I'm reaching out, I'm calling out to you, I'm bringing you to mind. I'm recalling your faithfulness and your love and your goodness, your character and how you've proven yourself over and over to me. He remembers as a young boy watching over the flocks, God was watching over him. God was with him when he fought Goliath. God was with him during the tumultuous days with Saul. He was with David when he, he was appointed the king. 
He was with David when he defeated the Philistines and the Amalekites. He was with David, even in his sin with Bathsheba. The mercy of God to bring Nathan to him and to expose the sin in his heart and life. He was with him in the death of this child, his early child. And God was with him now in the wilderness. So David has recalled God's role in his life. He's concluded that God has been his help. He's been his help. You look at this phrase, it really, he's, he's saying, not only, I mean, God has, he has helped me here, here, and here, and here. Really, God has been my helper. He is not just my help. He is my helper. He is the one who supplies help. I you to consider something with me. Studying this week on this passage, second part of verse 7. It says, In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. What does David mean when he, when he says that he will sing for joy in the shadow of his wings? Well, look back at verse 2. David looks and beholds and knows that God is powerful and glorious, that his steadfast love is better than life, leading to praise. He looked upon God in the sanctuary Verse 2 says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. See, though David is now in the wilderness, he's a long way from Jerusalem. He's a long way from the sanctuary, the place where God's presence abides. But David is now, I mean, he's longing. He's looking back at Jerusalem and the place where God dwells. And he says that he has seen him. He has looked upon. He has he cast his eyes and seen God. And now he's beholding. He's taking it in. Beholding God's power and glory. The power and glory of God's presence there. Now in verse 6, he remembers and meditates and sings with exultant joy in the shadow of his wings. I think there's a parallel here between this sanctuary that David's talking about in verse 2 and in the shadow of the wings here. See, in the holy place of the tabernacle was kept the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark, there was placed a heavy thing called the mercy seat. It was covered in gold. And on each end, they fashioned these big cherubim. They were covered in gold. And they each had two wings, and they arched over that mercy seat. One arching this way, and the other one arching this way overshadowing or covering that mercy seat. And it was under the shadow of these wings that God's presence would rest. I want you to listen. Listen, this is Exodus 25, beginning in verse 19. This is God instructing Moses on how to construct the ark. He says, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. There facing to one another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony of the commandments that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I have given you in the commandment 
for the people of Israel. So there on that mercy seat, God's presence under the shadow of the wings, God's presence would bow and Moses would go into that place. The high priest would go into that place into the very presence of God and meet him. I think David's looking and beholding, remembering and meditating all point to the deliverance found in God's presence. I mean, we see this all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 31, 19, David writes, Oh, how abundant is your your goodness, which you have which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Another Psalm, Psalm 41, verse 11 and 12 says, By this I know that, that you delight in me, My enemies shall not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. It's beautiful. How does David sing for joy under his current circumstances? It's because he knows that he's in the shadow of the wings of God. Wherever he goes, God's presence is with him. And in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. David knows that God's presence will deliver him from his enemies. Beginning in verse 9, we read, actually, he prophesies what's about to happen. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be killed by the sword and given as fodder for the carnivorous birds. You know, that's exactly what happened. Absalom marshaled all his men. They crossed the Jordan. They went to go get David, all the men of Israel. David's men came into battle. God's presence was with them. And they slaughtered Absalom's men. 20,000 men were killed by the sword. Their bodies strewn all throughout the land. Food for the buzzards. God alone delivers. God alone delivers. See, when you're on the run from the enemy, from any enemy, God alone delivers. Just as he did with David, he will uphold you with his right hand. You see, in the loss of a loved one, David, I see you back there, in the loss of your father, he will sustain you and uphold you. The loss of a loved one and the miscarriage of a child, the, the challenge of raising a toddler or maybe two or three at the same time the pain of a wayward son or daughter, the battle with cancer or or some other debilitating illness, financial stresses, the fear of loneliness, the loss of retirement funds, the, the battle of addiction, the uncertainty of tomorrow, whatever you're facing, see and behold your God. See his power and glory. Know that deliverance... Know that his deliverance is always presence because his presence there is, in his presence, there's always deliverance. He is our deliverer. About five years ago, my dad was uh, diagnosed with kidney cancer. They had to take out one of his kidneys. 
A little while later, they found cancer in his bladder. He had several procedures with that and treatments over the over the over the months. And then after it was gone, he was declared uh, cancer-free, but he'd have to go back for regular tra- uh, checkups every six months, and then they became every year. This past week, he went in for his five-year checkup. After five years, they give you the all-clear. So he goes in, they have the check. Well, this past week, he got word there's another tumor in his bladder. Another tumor. I was thinking, Dad, if... As you listen to this sermon, I want you to know that God alone satisfies. In the midst of the disappointment of news like this, He satisfies and He delivers. Trust Him. And just like David, praise Him. And when you're on the run, God, God is your satisfaction. He alone is your deliverance. But then I want you to see the fruit that these two truths produce. Look at at David's response. I mean, really throughout this psalm. Verse 1. He says, I will praise you. He seeks him. His soul thirsts for him. In a dry and there was no water. So I looked upon you and said, Behold in your power. Behold your steadfast love. It's better than life. And my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you. Also, verse 4, I'll lift up my hands. And I, verse 5, I will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7, I will sing with, to you with joy. Verse 11, I rejoice in God. In verse 11 as well, I will exalt in God. When you find yourself in the desert place, when you're dry and weary, when difficulty seems overwhelming, when you've experienced tragic loss, when you're on the run, let these truths drive you to worship. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. David says, I will bless you as long as I live. This word bless, it literally means to to bow the knee. It's the word for worship, to to bow the knee. David is saying, every day of my life, as long as I am taking in breath, I am going to bow the knee before you because you alone, you alone are my satisfaction and my deliverer. And then he says, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Do you see what David is doing here? Do you see it? He's, he's on his knees. I will bless you. I am on my knees. And he's lifting up his hands. There are no distractions. He's not busy. It's all God. He has surrendered. He is fully there. God, you alone, where can I go? What can I do? It's you. You alone are my satisfaction. You alone are my deliverer. I will praise you. I will worship you all of my days. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I'm satisfied in you alone, for you alone are my deliverer. You know, I learned a couple things on the golf course that hot summer day. First, always carry water when you're playing golf. And then I'm glad. I, I learned what it's like to feel thirst all throughout your body. 
I want to ask you a couple of questions as we conclude. First, how thirsty, how thirsty are you for God? I mean, thirsty, that if you didn't get to drink of him, you feel like your life might just perish. You take a few sips of Jesus every once in a while and go, all right, I'm good. Come in on Sunday and get a little bit, take a little drink, and oh, I'm on my way, and then I can, do, I can just do my thing until Sunday, and I'll take another sip of Jesus. Oh, ask God to open, open your eyes to see and behold the, the beauty and the wonder, awe and the power and the glory of his presence. Ask God to give you a, a hunger and thirst for him that's, I mean, that's insatiable. Then go after him, seek him, pursue him, knowing that, that he alone is the spring of, of living water. As we read about this woman at the well. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer, he gives us this prayer at the end of his first chapter that he, in that first chapter, he speaks of Psalm 63. Listen to this prayer. Let this be our prayer. Oh, God. I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. And I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory. I pray that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from the misty loveland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. Longing and thirsting isn't something that we just can conjure up. I really think it's a work of God something that he does, his spirit does. So pray and ask God to do that renewing, to give you a thirst and a longing for him that maybe you've never experienced before. Another question, second question. Where do you find your ultimate satisfaction? If it's in things other than God, I mean, they're really just like cotton candy. You know, you go to the fair and you buy a cotton candy and it looks so good, pretty and pink, maybe blue, purple, maybe mix. And you pull off a piece and you stick it in your mouth. What happens? It's gone. Now it tastes good, but the belly is never satisfied. It's gone like that. And we give ourselves to those things. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Run to him. Go hard after him. Taste and see that he alone is fully satisfying. Lastly, what mountain or trial are you facing? And if you don't have one of these mountains or trials... The day will come when they do come. Like David, it, it may be, I mean, it may be suddenly. He got the word and off he went, left everything, not knowing if he'd ever return 
not knowing if he'd live to see the next day. Who are you going to turn to? Who will be your helper and deliverer? What will be your response? Will it be complaint or will it be worship? Back over your life. Remember what God has done. Know that God will uphold you. Know that the enemy, whatever that enemy, cancer, whatever it is, one day that's going to be defeated. Worship him. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't even have a relationship with God. You're here exploring. Someone brought you here. I want you to know that God's steadfast love is better than life. All of us, every one of us here have rebelled and sinned against God because he's holy. That sin deserves the penalty of spiritual death and and eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. Yet God, the scripture says, he demonstrated his love, this steadfast love. He demonstrated it in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he sent his son to die on a cross. And there he took upon himself our sin. And for all of us who trust him, who turn from sin and trust in him, he gives the joy of eternal life. One day being ultimately satisfied in the presence of God forever. If you want to know more about what it means to to follow Christ and to be fully satisfied in him alone, I'll be down here. Many of our staff will be around. Come talk to us. We'd love to visit with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Praise God. He alone satisfies. Praise God. He alone delivers. Let's pray together. God, you're our God. We're your people. And we have been blessed because we know you. You have given your son for us. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. God, and we want and we need more of you. We seek you. Our hearts and our souls, our flesh thirsts and faints and hungers for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, we want to see and behold you. We want to, to taste and savor your goodness. God, fill us. God, in those areas where we have gone to lesser things, oh God, help us to see the futility of those things. And help us to sit and dine in the fat and riches of your presence. I thank you for your word. Thank you for David. Thank you that in his life, God, he experienced what it means to be fully satisfied in you. God, he saw you deliver him amid insurmountable odds. You were a faithful God. You were a steadfast love. Better than life. We praise you. We worship you. We bow the knee and we lift up our hands. Oh God, our God.
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.